why not put Merrick Garland on the floor? And if the rationale is, you know what, too close to an election, then vote no. <laughs> Look, uh, <laughs> Look at Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Uh, one of the reasons. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9 FM. And in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says you from bradblog.com thank you for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure we call the bradcast that voice you heard of course was desi doyan our uh, delightful and lovely producer how yes, are you desi doyan i am here uh that good huh <laughs> coming up resistance uh, has been working against some of donald trump's most dangerous attempts at key policy changes Last week, as Donald Trump released his executive order calling for the rollback of Barack Obama's central climate and environmental policy achievements, we explained both here on the broadcast and with the lovely Desi Doyen on the Green News Report um, how uh, how Trump's calls to overturn key environmental rules and regulations, many of them years in the making, often in response to court orders and rulings, that those would be actually difficult to accomplish, that rollback, and uh, would also face stiff opposition and legal challenges from many quarters. Among the first of those legal challenges, the first, in fact, um, since he signed that uh, executive order last week, was filed last week against Trump's attempt to lift the moratorium on new coal leases on public lands that Barack Obama had put in place before leaving office. We'll be joined momentarily by one of the attorneys representing one of the groups which has filed in federal court to block that move in the first of many obstacles that Trump is facing in uh, in helping corporate polluters to pollute, frankly, in what many regard as an absurd attempt to, among other things, revive the dying coal industry. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. But speaking of the opposition and the resistance with Senator Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, today announcing uh, this afternoon during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the pending confirmation vote of Judge Neil Gorsuch to fill the U.S. Supreme Court seat that was vacated by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, 
way back in February of 2016 uh, and, and, and has been stolen ever since then by, uh, by Republicans who refused to hold a hearing, much less an up or down vote on Barack Obama's nominee for that seat, Judge Merrick Garland, for more than 300 days. Uh, Chris Coons has now said that uh, Senator Chris Coons has now said that he will oppose Neil Gorsuch um, on the wake of that unprecedented Republican filibuster, judicial coup, whatever you want to call it. So with uh, Coons saying he's against Gorsuch, Senate Democrats now have enough uh, votes uh, against Donald Trump's nomination uh, to uh, to uh, for Neil Gorsuch to successfully filibuster Trump's nomination in the U.S. Senate. The Senate Judiciary Committee today voted 11 to 9 uh, in favor of Gorsuch along party lines uh, to approve his nomination and to send it to the full se- to the full Senate for consideration later this week. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell the architect of that unprecedented coup that blocked Merrick Garland's nomination for a full year. <sighs> McConnell has long vowed that Gorsuch will be confirmed to that stolen Supreme Court seat no matter what this week, leaving McConnell now officially with the option of trying to kill the pol- possibility of a f- filibuster for U.S. Supreme Court nominees altogether, kill it entirely in the U.S. Senate. So there is no possibility for anyone to ever filibuster a U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Uh, McConnell has repeatedly indicated that he was likely to do that, to call for a vote to kill the filibuster entirely if Gorsuch saw his uh, his nomination filibustered by Democrats. Here's Mitch McConnell being asked about exactly that on Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press with Chuck Todd and refusing to answer Chuck Todd's question of whether, well, whether McConnell would pass a Senate resolution to say that Republicans would never, ever vote to confirm a Supreme Court nominee in an election year, which is, of course, the excuse that McConnell and Republicans gave for failing to give Merrick Garland an up or down vote. Clearly uh, a debate and a fight about how Supreme Court justices are confirmed how it was handled. Do you have any regrets on how you treated Merrick Garland last year? No, the, the, the tradition had been not to confirm uh, vacancies created in the middle of a presidential year. You'd have to go back to 80 years to find the last time that happened. You go back to 1880s uh, to find uh, the last time it happened. Before that, uh, everyone knew, including uh, President Obama's former White House counsel, that if the shoe had been on the other foot, they wouldn't have filled a Republican president's vacancy mm-hmm. in the middle of a Supreme Court, uh, uh, in the middle of a presidential election. So that clearly wasn't going to happen, even if the roles had been reversed. Well, I understand that, but why not? If that was the rationale, that's a rationale to vote against his confirmation. Why not put him up for a vote? Really? Well, I mean, why really? is that? that a, has... I mean, I'm just that is a look. Any senator can have <laughs> a rationale not to vote for a confirmation. Why not put Merrick Garland on the floor? And if the rationale is, you know what, too close to an election, then vote no. <laughs> Look, uh, I, we, we, we litigated that last year. Uh, the American people decided they wanted Donald Trump to make the nomination, not Hillary Clinton. And what's before us now, Chuck, is not what happened last year, but the qualifications of Neil Gorsuch, unanimously well qualified by the American Bar Association. 99% of the time in the majority, 97% of his opinions uh, were unanimous. Only one time reversed by the Supreme Court. There's no rational basis, no principled reason for voting against Neil Gorsuch. And that's what's before the Senate 
this week. You say we, uh, it's been litigated uh, last year, the Merrick Garland situation. For a lot of Senate Democrats, they're not done litigating this, including someone like Tom Carper, a Democratic senator yeah. who is not comfortable with the idea of filibustering, but believes yeah. Merrick Garland was mistreated. Again, what was wrong with allowing Merrick Garland <laughs> to have an up or down vote? I already, t I already told you, uh, you don't fill Supreme Court vacancies in the middle of a presidential election. That's what Joe Biden said back in 1992. Should that be the policy going forward? Are you prepared to pass a resolution that says in election years, any Supreme Court vacancy and have it to be the sense of a Senate resolution that say no Supreme Court nominations will be considered in any even numbered year? Is that where we're headed? Chuck, with all due respect, that's an absurd question. We were right in the middle of a presidential election year. Everybody knew that neither side had the Schubert on the other foot would have filled it. But that has nothing to do with what we're voting on this year. Why don't we talk about what we're voting on this week? And that's this extraordinarily well-qualified nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> Boy, I've never heard uh, Mitch McConnell laugh so much. A lot of nervous laughter there yeah. from Mitch McConnell for some odd reason. And some unwillingness to answer even the, the basic question of just why not go ahead and give him a vote. J uh, Merrick Garland last yes. year, yeah, and and vote against him. They had the majority last year. They could have voted against him. Uh, well, setting aside for a minute here uh, Gorsuch's qualifications, because we haven't really even gone into that on this show because I don't care. I've made it clear I don't care how qualified he is. The, the Republicans stole the Supreme Court seat. There needs to be some sort of institutional penalty for doing that for for more than a year now at this point. Uh, he uh, McConnell also said in there that we haven't had a vote in a presidential election year for a Supreme Court nominee in 80 years. Well, that's because there was there was no Supreme Court vacancy created in a presidential year in in the past 80 years. So uh, there was no rule. It just simply hadn't happened. As far as the people deciding that they wanted uh, that this was litigated last year, they wanted Donald Trump to decide. Actually, no, a majority of Americans decided they wanted Hillary Clinton to make that nomination. Yes, we have an electoral college, so it works a little bit differently. But as far as what the American people wanted, if you want to say what was litigated, well, uh, the American people, uh, majority, wanted uh, Hillary Clinton to make that decision. Now, McConnell's ability to kill the filibuster rule for the Supreme Court nominees in the U.S. Senate presumes that he can get enough of his own Republican colleagues to join him in what would be an unprecedented move, killing the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. But they, Republicans, joined him last year in essentially filibustering a very mainstream centrist nominee with uh, Merrick Garland. He's so centrist, so mainstream, by the way, that uh, even far-right Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch had asked uh, Obama to nominate Merrick Garland to the court. So it would be no surprise if, uh, if Senate Republicans voted to kill the filibuster uh, enough of them, a majority of them, they've got 52 senators. If uh, essentially 50 vote to kill the filibuster, then Mike Pence would uh, would break the tie. So it won't be a surprise if they're able to do it this week, but they would have to have um, to stop that on the Republican side. Uh, if there are three Republicans who say, no, we really should not kill this filibuster, for Supreme Court nominee, uh, nominations, they could prevent that from uh, from being nuked in the U.S. Senate. So uh, 
you know, they have an option on and you have an option uh, whether you want your senator to stand strong against Neil Gorsuch or if you want your senator, if he's a he or she is a Republican, well, I guess it would have to be a, a he if it was a senator. I don't think there's any. <laughs> female senators am i right about yeah, you know off the top I of my head I, I don't think there are any female republican senators if you have a, a republican senator and if you want them to vote against killing the filibuster for supreme court nominees in the u.s senate you need to call them you need to call your senator and let them know either way the phone number to call your senator is 202-224-3121 202-224-3121 Two two four three one two one. Right now, democracy, direct democracy, uh, has proven so far to be the most effective type of democracy that we've got going in the Trump era. Public pressure has been working on a whole bunch of issues on on blocking the the Republican health care bill. Uh, frankly, on encouraging this many Democratic senators to stand up and to vote against cloture against ending the filibuster and against Gorsuch and in favor of some sort of institutional penalty for this unprecedented theft of a Supreme Court majority for a generation. So take part in your democracy. You can call your senator no matter how you feel about this. 202-224-3121. Even if you think your senator, by the way, may already vote the way you'd like him or her to do. Uh, There are a lot of procedural hurdles that need to be overcome in the coming days. Uh, McGonnell's game of chicken here on the filibuster, uh, you know, is going to near us towards week's end. Your senator may still need uh, themselves to uh, strengthen their backbone. So um, you can help. Call them and shore shore them up with your support, 202-224-3121. Okay, and still speaking of opposition here before I get to my guest, Uh, And the resistance, Um, a fascinating report from over the weekend at Washington Post, uh, the Wonk blog, with all of this talk about saving the coal miners, saving the coal industry that we've heard over the past week, certainly since uh, Trump signed his executive order um, and uh, throughout months and months of the campaign last year about the coal industry, as if it's this huge industry that needs saving. Well, Over at uh, Washington Post, Christopher Ingram points out that um, the entire coal industry, and I hadn't realized this, the entire coal industry, as his headline goes, employs fewer people than Arby's. Did you know that, Desi Doyen? I did not know that specific statistic, no. Uh, yeah, he vowed, of course, at his signing ceremony for that uh, to roll back Obama-era environmental regulations, uh, that he would put our miners back to work. He made this promise, we will put our miners back to work. Well, experts say that ain't going to happen, that coal jobs are extremely unlikely to come back, and the plight of the industry is much more functioning of changing energy markets and increased demand for cheaper, cleaner natural gas than anything else. Uh, For example, Robert Murray, the chief executive of the nation's largest privately held coal operation, Murray Energy, even he, a huge Trump supporter, he told The Guardian earlier this month that Trump can't bring back these coal jobs. Um, And uh, uh, Ingram points out another largely overlooked point about coal jobs is that there just aren't that many of them relative to other industries. The Census Bureau's County Business Patterns Program 
uh, found that uh, just over 76,000 people, this was back in 2014, 76,500 people were employed by the coal industry. And that includes not just miners, but office workers, sales staff, all of the other individuals who work at coal mining companies. Now, 76,000 people, he notes, might seem like a large number, but compare it to uh, similar numbers of people who are employed, say, by the bowling industry. The bowling industry employs more people than the coal industry? Uh, Almost. 69,000 in the bowling. Uh, So there's still, you know, let's call it 76,000 in coal industry. Comparable. Comparable. 75,000 are in the skiing industry. He points out that other dwindling industries like travel agencies, they employ almost 100,000 people. So, yes, travel agencies. So the dying travel agency industry employs more people than the dying coal industry. Yep. Uh, So do used car dealerships, 138,000 jobs. Casinos employ nearly 100,000 people. Theme parks. Theme parks provide, uh, let's see, twice, more than twice as many people work at theme parks than work in the coal industry. 144,000 people. Uh, At the top of his list here, um, car wash employment. Car wash uh, employment tops 150,000. More people work at car washes. Twice as many people work than at car washes. Than in the washes. coal industry, right. More people work, um, almost the same number work at Whole Foods. More people at Arby's uh, work at Arby's alone than the coal industry. J.C. Penney's employs, and I didn't even know J.C. Penney's was still around. They employ more than uh, 114,000. Walmart, 2.2 million employees, roughly 28 times as many uh, jobs as coal. So uh, he also says, if anything, the numbers uh, for the coal industry are overestimated by that report because it was a 2014 report. Um and uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says the number for uh, of uh, coal jobs is now closer to 50,000 than 75,000 or 76,000 as of February 2017. Um, so, you know, whether there even is an industry to bring back, the disproportionate amount of time that is being spent on it. And money. And money. uh at, at at the cost to the environment and frankly to workers uh, of all sorts is is just remarkable. He uh, Ingram notes even a quarter century ago the coal industry employed only 131,000 people. So if Trump were to somehow bring all of those jobs back, there would still be more people employed by the retail shoe sales industry which employs 224,000 people. Nonetheless, uh, despite the well-established harm to both uh, local environments and uh, the planet's climate, Trump really, really, really wants to bring back coal somehow. Last week, as I said, he lifted the Obama administration's uh, moratorium on coal leasing on our public lands. That move, like many others in Trump's so-called energy independence order, is already being challenged in courts of law. That story and the attorney challenging Trump's coal order is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. 
We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. I made them this promise. We will put our miners back to work. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. Well, I'm working at the coal mine going down. Yeah, good luck with that, Mr. President. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. The uh, U.N. body, the United Nations body tasked with tackling climate change, according to AP, says it will wait and see what impact U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to roll back the previous administration's efforts to curb global warming will have. The head of the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, says she is watching with interest the suspension and review of Obama-era regulations ordered by Trump last Tuesday. Patricia Espinoza's cautiously worded statement on Friday, three days after the U.S. announcement, adds that the precise impact on UNFCCC and its work, quote, remains unclear at this juncture and perhaps will only become clear over time. She is right, of course, but we're beginning to get a sense of how the Trump administration's attempt to roll back Obama's climate and energy policies is going. Uh, like so many of their efforts, they look to be facing a very rocky path. For example, U.S. stocks briefly today, only briefly, reversed course to trade lower after New York and other states announced a challenge to the Trump administration for what they charge is illegally blocking energy efficiency standards, casting further doubt on the new government's ability to push through planned reforms, particularly in the environment, cl climate and energy sectors. Uh, Reuters reports that a coalition of U.S. states today has mounted a broad legal challenge against what it called the Trump administration's illegal suspension of rules to improve the energy efficiency of things like ceiling fans, portable air, condition, uh, or air conditioners, and other products. The challenge, also joined by environmental groups, comes after the U.S. Department of Energy last month delayed standards proposed under the Obama administration to reduce air pollution and operating costs associated with those products. Ten Democratic attorneys general plus New York City and a Pennsylvania regulator on Monday notified Energy Secretary Rick Perry of their plan to sue in 60 days for stalling those proposed standards. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman said adopting the common sense efficiency standards would dramatically reduce air pollution, including from carbon dioxide, mercury and methane. He said enough electricity would be saved 
to serve 36 million households annually, annually, and save consumers and businesses close to $24 billion. Leaving the final rules in regulatory limbo, he says, has very real negative economic and environmental consequences, essentially frustrating Congress's energy conservation goals. Um, the uh, attorneys general say in their letter uh, to, to Rick Perry, Secretary of Energy, the letter was signed by officials in California, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, New York City, and uh, at the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Meanwhile, in related news, last Thursday, uh, the uh, Sierra Club, Northern Plains Resource Council, Bold Alliance, Center for Biological Diversity, Friends of the Earth, and the Natural Resources Defense Council, filed a lawsuit themselves in federal court in Montana challenging the State Department's border crossing permit and related environmental reviews and approvals for the Keystone XL pipeline. In an effort to comply with what the groups describe as Donald Trump's arbitrary 60-day decision deadline the U.S. Department relied on when issuing their approval for the massive and highly controversial tar sands oil pipeline, uh, they say that that was, uh, decision was based solely on an outdated and incomplete environmental impact statement, which fails to properly account for the pipeline's threats to the climate, water resources, wildlife, and communities along the pipeline route. Michael Brune, the Sierra Club's executive director, issued a statement with the court filing charging that the Keystone XL pipeline is nothing more than a dirty and dangerous proposal that's time has passed. It was rightfully rejected by the Court of Public Opinion and President Obama, and now it will be rejected in the court system, Brune vowed. Those are just two of the legal hurdles that the Trump administration is now facing in the wake of their attempts to roll back a, a host of President Obama's climate and energy policies, particularly since that executive order signed last week when Trump promised that he would bring back coal jobs through the reversal of Obama-era regulations, many of them in response, by the way, to long-standing legislation and court orders. Experts say the return of coal jobs, however, is wildly unlikely. Another new suit uh, has also been filed now against the Trump administration. This one was filed just one day after Trump's so-called energy independence order last week. Uh, the suit is in response to the Trump administration's lifting of a moratorium on coal mining leases on publicly owned lands. Currently, the Bureau of Land Management determines how 570 million acres of public lands are leased to coal companies for exploration and for mining. According to EarthJustice.org, however, more than one-tenth of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous climate change come from coal mined on lands owned and managed on behalf of the public by the federal government. Earth Justice has now sued the Trump administration, but that comes after they had also sued the Obama administration as well back in 2014 in hopes of forcing that administration to review the federal government's coal leasing program, which had not been significantly updated since 1979, nearly 40 years ago. Just before leaving office, the Obama administration placed a moratorium on those coal leases on federal lands in order to allow the government to review the dangers to the climate and the royalty rates that the public was receiving in return for those corporate leases on public lands. 
Now the Trump administration has lifted that Obama administration moratorium and Earth Justice is back in court with a new lawsuit for the administration uh, to restore the previous moratorium and the government's review of federal coal leasing policy. Here now to talk about that new lawsuit, the impacts of coal mining on public's lands, and the broader effort by environmental law groups to hold the line against the Trump administration's rollback of environmental standards is Jenny Harbine. Uh, she is the staff attorney with, uh, with EarthJustice.org, the nation's original and largest nonprofit environmental law organization. Jenny is the lead attorney in Earth Justice's new lawsuit challenging that uh, Trump administration lift of the Obama administration moratorium on coal leasing. And she joins us today from Bozeman, Montana, I believe. Jenny, uh, welcome. Jenny Harbine, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Really great to have you here. I want to talk about what the Trump administration is now attempting to do by lifting this moratorium and uh, what your lawsuit uh, is hoping uh, to do in order to prevent it. But first, can you explain, Jenny, what was the Obama administration's policy when it came to federal coal leases? Uh, and how did your 2014 suit affect a change in that policy? Uh, the Obama administration recognized actually just in January of last year, 2016, that the federal coal leasing program needs reform. And it needs reform because, as you pointed out, it, it hadn't been significantly reviewed or modified since 1979. And, and since then, you know, not only do we have substantial and growing evidence that continued mining and burning of coal will make it impossible to avert the worst climate change scenarios. We also have a reality that coal mining and burning has caused tremendous public health harm, uh, particularly to low-income communities and communities of color. And all the while, federal coal leasing has failed to live up to its promise to generate a fair return to American taxpayers. So the Obama administration uh, in January of last year decided it was time to put a halt to uh, new federal coal leases until it could examine these really significant impacts of federal policy and determine what reforms were needed. And just before leaving office, the Obama administration issued a, a report that marked the first stage of its review um, that, that reinforced, I think, what the rest of us have known all along, which is that the mining and burning of coal from federal public lands does cause these tremendous public health harms. It contributes substantially to um, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. As you've noted, uh, coal from federal lands accounts for you know, fully 10% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And it's time for reform. And it's time to evaluate whether uh, federal coal leasing is appropriate at all, given uh, the state of the science on climate change. Um, that decision uh, was certainly a long time coming. Um, there, there was a lawsuit arguing that the administration needed to undertake that uh, new uh, uh, study of the federal coal program. That was not an earth justice lawsuit, but it was certainly a significant step um, in this process. 
you know, fast forward just a year later, and the Trump administration has uh, reversed those science-based decisions of the Obama administration, and we're taking them to court. How, how did the, uh, before we get into what specifically Trump is trying to do here, how, how did the coal leasing program, as you say, fail to generate a fair return for the for the taxpayers, and I guess it still is because we're still under that uh, whatever the previous uh, coal leasing program was, correct? No, ma- no matter whether uh, Trump overturns Obama's policies or not, we're still under that previous uh, uh, policy, correct? That's right. It's been documented over the past decade by independent aud- auditors, including the um, Government Accountability Office, uh, the uh, Inspector General for the Department of the Interior and others that the, uh, the the federal government, when it collects royalties from these coal leases on federal land, isn't collecting enough. Um, it's not collecting even the market value for this coal. In fact, it's mm. pennies pennies on the dollar. And, and the reason for that is is um, you know th- th- there are many and, and some are quite complicated, but. But it really boils down to the simple fact that that coal leasing is not competitive. Um, typically, coal is leased in areas that are adjacent to existing mine, and you have really only one natural bidder on those leases. And it's not a competitive process. Mm. And the government has failed to insist on really the full market value for those leases. Now, now that's one set of considerations. Mm-hmm considerations, but the other that the Obama administration had pledged to evaluate was whether, you know, it, even, if mark, even if coal was uh, being leased at market prices, is that fully compensating the public for the social costs, the really substantial social costs? Of coal mining and burning, and when, when you and, say when you the say answer, the social cost, no. the answer is no. You say Jenny Harbine, but I want to make sure when you say the social cost, because we've been talking a little bit recently on the shows about uh, the social cost of carbon. What exactly do you mean by the, the the social costs and and the compensation for that? What type of costs are we talking about? So the coal industry is really the poster child for subsidizing these kind of social and environmental costs. And what we're talking about uh, are the tremendous air quality impacts, water quality impacts from coal mining, um, and, and additionally, the burning of coal creates you know, a, a great deal of waste that, uh, that pollutes our water resources, and also the cost that society as a whole bears due to climate change. And as I've noted, those costs, uh, both in terms of of climate change and pollution, Mm -hmm. are really borne disproportionately by uh, our low-income communities and communities of color. And in failing to require the coal industry to internalize those costs, we're really turning our backs on those communities. So we're talking... When we're when we're talking about the 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 cost, so we're talking about you know things like the health cost uh, to the people who live near these sites, but also just literally the financial cost. How much it costs for uh, cleaning up rivers and streams? How much uh, uh, you know health uh, costs uh, to you know to pay the medical bills of those people who are harmed by it? So these are these are very real numbers that you would then add to the. 
uh, to the underpayment uh, that the coal companies are are uh, asked to to do really in the in the royalties on these uh, on these lands. And there's a frankly a lot of money. There's a lot of subsidies. It sounds like the federal government ultimately uh, is giving away in the process here. Uh, and I guess that is what the Obama administration had hoped to review in part. Um, so what is the Trump administration now? What is their new policy? Has uh, uh, I understand that uh, Secretary uh, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has basically lifted the moratorium with w- is he able to do that with a stroke of uh, of his pen? And, and now we can start the leasing program all over again uh, just from his his say so. Well, it's certainly the prerogative of an incoming presidential administration to change policies. But it's it's no decision-maker's prerogative to do so without an adequate rationale and to do so in um, contradiction of the science and the facts. And what the Obama administration had done so well is to document that science and the rationale behind um, imposing the moratorium. The Obama administration said, we can't lock in decades more of these impacts before we've even evaluated how we should appropriately deal with them. Now, in, in lifting the moratorium, Trump admi- the Trump administration and Ryan Zinke provided no rationale, and that's absolutely uh, contrary to law. So they have to, they can't just roll it back because, oh, we like coal, we've got a lot of uh, uh, you know, coal barons who have contributed to our uh, to our campaign, and we want to thank them by making this regulation, these policies easier for them. That's that's unlawful, right? They they have to show an actual scientific basis for changing uh, for changing these regulations. That's right. I mean, Trump made a lot of campaign pro- promises, and you know, I understand that he feels obligated. Um, to fulfill them, pr- promises to his cronies in the coal industry. But, but separately, the president has a legal obligations that courts uh, have enforced you know, for, for decades to engage in rational decision-making, to make decisions that are based on science. And here it couldn't be clearer that the directive that came down from Trump to Zinke and that was implemented through the secretarial order last week was based solely on politics and not on science. And it flies in the face of the reality we all face as a nation and as a world in climate change. And so your new lawsuit at Earth Justice uh, is attempting to unroll back that uh, lifting of the moratorium? Is that uh, that what you guys are asking for? And does your new lawsuit actually address the the continuing reported uh, you know below market rates paid by coal companies for for resources extracted from our public lands. Our our lawsuit seeks to reinstate the process that the Obama administration had initiated mm-hmm. to carefully look at at these issues, and and we think if that process uh, is is put back in place, the the inevitable conclusion is that we have a broken system that needs reform. Um, and that that's why the conservation organizations partnered with the Northern Cheyenne Tribe to uh, to really shine the light on Trump's short-sighted uh, attempt to revive a dying coal industry through subsidized leases and incomplete environmental consideration. It, and we're asking the court to require that consideration and to maintain in the interim this 
this moratorium on coal leases that prevents the government from locking in these impacts that haven't been adequately studied. Is, is there, uh, Jenny Harbine, is, is there a real issue? I mean, is, is this just politics, period? Is there a real issue, uh, you know, that uh, the coal companies have with the federal leasing right now? Don't we already have a glut of coal? And don't we already have a whole bunch of federal leases that are not even being used right now by coal companies? What I, I guess what I'm asking is, in other words, the lack of leases, uh, leasing currently during the moratorium under Obama, the lack of, of leasing under that, is was that really a problem for the coal industry right now? Or is this just a um, essentially a show to say, look, uh, but you know, by Donald Trump, look, we we love coal mining, we love the coal industry, so we're lifting the moratorium. Is there any real issue, real complaint, real grievance that the uh, that the coal industry actually has with the federal leasing program? Well, the problem that's facing the uh, coal industry in the United States right now is is not one that can be reversed by. Trump administration policies. It's fundamentally a problem driven by the markets. Um, you know, coal, you, you have to remember that the, the coal fleet in the United States is 30 to 50 years old. These coal plants are at the end of their useful life anyway. The, the, uh, the burning of coal is becoming more expensive all the time, and that's before you even factor in fuel costs. Mm -hmm. uh, where coal is facing an uphill battle in competing against, uh, you know, currently very cheap natural gas and a rising tide of economic renewables development. And, and those market forces aren't going to be reversed um, by any Trump administration policies. So, you know, what, what we're seeing with, with this new, um, you know, rollback mm -hmm. of regulations is an attempt really to line the pocketbooks of coal industry executives. We may see a short-term bump in, um, in stock prices. You know, we, we see uh, cheaper production costs through potential re relaxation of environmental uh, restrictions and enforcement. But what we don't see is a long-term revival of the coal industry. That market share has been lost permanently, um, and, and we're not going to see, you know, the return of coal jobs that have already been lost um, to these market forces. But in the near term, what, what we fear we might see is, you know, in, environmental setbacks, you know, real harm to real people and, and communities that are depending on our government to look after our interests. I know that well, it remains to be seen. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Finish, finish your thought, Jenny. It, it, it remains to be seen what kind of demand we're going to see um, for new coal leases now that the moratorium uh, is lifted. You know, a number of coal companies are just coming out of bankruptcy, mm -hmm. and they've been relatively quiet about their future plans for significant new investments at their mines. Mm -hmm. But some coal companies have talked openly about demand for new leases. Cloud Peak Energy, for example, still talks aggressively about the need for new leases, and we're looking especially closely at their Spring Creek mine in Montana, where Cloud Peak has an application pending for 200 million tons of coal 
um, that has been uh, put in limbo by the moratorium but now can proceed. I, I've been... Um Earth Justice, I know, serves as legal counsel for a lot of the smaller local groups in, in lawsuits uh, across the nation uh, from uh, representing the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, I believe, in, in uh, North Dakota in the effort to stop the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline uh, to a host of lawsuits in states across the country. Um, and you, I had mentioned the uh, Sierra Club's attempt, I think since you're up in Montana, I think they filed up in Montana, if I'm not mistaken, uh, against the Keystone XL pipeline up there. Um, in it, we got just a minute or so left, but I, I've been suggesting that it's going to be very difficult for uh, the Trump administration to actually pull off a lot of the the climate agenda that they have announced that they you know that that they've been promising given the pushback from groups like yours and uh, more more precisely that so many of these regulations in place are actually in response to existing federal regulations uh, and and court rulings uh, am I right that I think they're going to have a lot of trouble with all of these plans, or, or am I underestimating uh, the damage that a president can do with a with a stroke of a pen, as you see it, Jenny? Well, I think you're right uh, for two reasons, but with a caveat. Okay. And and the two reasons are practical and legal. As a practical matter, we are on a path to meet our commitments under the Clean Power Plan. Now, that's gonna, not going to be enough to satisfy our international climate commitments, but, but we have made tremendous progress, even without a Clean Power Plan in place, um, even with you know, new coal mining and new coal leases, and, and that's because um, of this advance of, of renewable technology. And, and I think um, you're right that that, that that progress will continue to be made, and, and we won't see a revival of the coal industry in the long term because of those market forces. As a legal matter, um, you're right that it's not so easy for the Trump administration to simply undo policies that were based on science and driven by legal requirements. Uh, you know, those, those decisions will face a tough road to hoe in uh, courts, which serve as an essential backstop to this kind of irrational decision-making. The caveat is I fear that the Trump administration can do some harm in the meantime. Uh, you know, there are not only the significant opportunity costs, uh, you know, where, where we had been making progress based finally on federal policies that took too long to put mm -hmm. in place in the first place. Right. Um, there are those opportunity costs, but there's also the, the fact that, you know, while we're marching toward a renewable en energy economy, you know, that, that's growing not steadily, but by leaps and bounds. And workers in the fossil fuel industry are not being appropriately prepared for this transition. And they are, you know, basing uh, their, their futures on really the false hope yeah. um, that the Trump administration has given them that their, their industry will revive. And, and I fear that those workers will be left in the dust. And not to mention the tremendous environmental harm um, that that can be um, imposed on communities when you have an administration that lo isn't looking out for those interests. So that's the caveat that, yeah. that you know we're we're looking to the courts to provide this backstop because 
there is some harm that the Trump administration can do, even as we march toward uh, a future where we are appropriately dealing with yeah. climate change. Yeah, you make a great point and uh, probably an unintended pun there about the workers being left, the coal workers, I suppose, being left in the dust. Uh, you're right. As we go towards renewable renewables, if, if nothing else right now, we should be uh, investing a lot of money in retraining a lot of folks uh, to find new jobs, new, healthier, uh, cleaner jobs in renewable energy. And uh, no matter what happens, even if you guys are successful, uh, uh, Jenny, those are investments that are not being made and, and time that is being uh, lost in that regard. So excellent point. Uh, Jenny Harbine, uh, really great uh, talking to you. Uh, I hope you'll join us again as the uh, as this lawsuit moves forward. Jenny Harbine is a staff attorney with EarthJustice.org. Their tagline, which I love, is because the earth needs a good lawyer. Love that, Jenny. You are a good lawyer and and good luck with your uh, with your lawsuit moving forward. Thank you, Brad. You can find Earth Justice at earthjustice.org and on the Twitters at earthjustice. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Thanks for sticking with us here. I didn't get to mention earlier in the show, by the way, uh, the the Democrats who are planning to currently vote along with Republicans in favor of Neil Gorsuch, or at least to uh, for cloture to uh, to end the on the filibuster against Neil Gorsuch. Uh, Democratic uh, Senator Joe Manchin from the coal state of West Virginia. Democrat Heidi Heitkamp from the coal state of North Dakota. Is it fair to call it North uh, oh, yeah. Coal State? Coal, yeah. oil, yep. fracking up there in North Dakota. Joe Donnelly um, from Indiana. And uh, Senate uh, Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado, which went for Hillary Clinton in a pretty big way, I think, last in 2016. So I'm not sure what Senator Michael Bennett is thinking. The, uh, you know, it might be regarding uh, natural gas and fracking in Colorado. The uh, Democrats, or at least uh, those who have not said which way they would vote here, Democrat uh, Bob Menendez from New Jersey, which also went uh, big to Hillary Clinton last year. So not sure what his problem is so far. And Angus King, independent from Maine. Uh, has held his uh, cards close to his vest. So you can call your senator, give them your opinion on how to vote for for or against Neil Gorsuch and uh, whether they should vote for or against killing the filibuster entirely for Supreme Court nominees. 202-224-3121 is that phone number. Uh, very quickly here, we talked last week about uh, Republicans in both the uh, state Senate and state House in Kansas, Kansas Republicans had voted along with some Democrats 
to uh, to expand Medicaid in the state of Kansas under the Obamacare program. Now that the uh, Republican attempt to kill the uh, to kill the Affordable Care Act has gone down in flames, at least for now. So Kansas Republicans said, yeah, we would like to expand Medicaid under uh, under the Obamacare provisions for that. And uh, uh, by wide majorities in both houses. However, Republican Governor Sam Brownback has vetoed that idea. That's official. He has now vetoed it. And the Kansas legislature legislators who had a lot of votes in both houses uh, voted to overcome that veto, to override that veto. Unfortunately, they could not get there. They were just a few votes shy. The uh, Kansas House voted 81 to 44 today to override the veto. Shortly after Brownback, the very right-wing uh, governor, announced his veto, backers of the measure fell three votes short of the two-thirds majority Ouch. necessary to overturn a veto. So 81 to 44, a huge majority said, let's expand Medicaid to more than 180,000 adults in the state of Kansas. That's, that's great progress, but to have lost with those 180,000 people to have lost their access to health care by just three votes. Well, actually, they didn't lose their access. I yeah, mean, they, 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 they did not gain their access right. that they would have. These are, are people who are poor, who can't afford uh, health care, health insurance. They yeah. would have been covered under Medicaid. And the federal government would pay, I believe it's 90 percent of those costs. And yet Republican Governor Sam Brownback is keeping that from happening. Um, despite overwhelming majority of uh, bipartisan majority in the House and the Senate in Kansas that would have liked to have extended uh, the Affordable Care Act to those people. So uh, Brownback's argument was that uh, expanding Medicaid would burden the state with what he called, quote, unrestrainable costs, even though it was picked up by the federal government for the most part. Uh, and even though Sam Brownback has uh, radically slashed taxes, absolutely decimating the economy in Kansas uh, during his tenure to date. OK, uh, very quickly before we get out here, uh, just an amazing, um, an amazing moment in our nation's history. It's kind of been that way every day over the past few months, to say the least. But an amazing uh, moment when you've got the Los Angeles Times, uh, the, the Times editorial board, putting out a four-part editorial, a four-part uh, editorial against, well, the first one was uh, over the weekend with the headline, Our Dishonest President. Read you a little bit of this. It was no secret during the campaign that Donald Trump was a narcissist and a demagogue, who used fear and dishonesty to appeal to the worst in American voters. The Times called him unprepared and unsuited for the job he was seeking and said his election would be a catastrophe. Still, nothing prepared us for the magnitude of this train wreck. Like millions of other Americans, we clung to a slim hope that the new president would turn out to be all noise and bluster or that the people around him in the White House would act as a check on his worst instincts or that he would be sobered and transformed by the awesome responsibilities of office. Instead, 70-some days in and with about 1,400 to go before his term is completed, oy, it is increasingly clear that those hopes were misplaced. 
In a matter of weeks, President Trump has taken dozens of real-life steps that, if they are not reversed, will rip families apart, foul rivers and pollute the air, intensify the calamitous effects of climate change, and profoundly weaken the system of American public education for all. His attempts to de-insure millions of people who had finally received health care coverage and along the way enact a massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich has been put on hold for the moment, but he is proceeding with his efforts to defang the government's regulatory agencies and bloat the Pentagon's budget even as he supposedly retreats from the global stage. These are immensely dangerous developments which threaten to weaken this country's moral standing in the world, imperil the planet, and reverse years of slow but steady gains by marginalized or impoverished Americans. But chilling as they are, these radically wrong-headed policy choices are not, in fact, the most frightening aspect of the Trump presidency. What's most worrisome about Trump is Trump himself. This is the Los Angeles Times editorial board saying this. He is a man so unpredictable, so reckless, so petulant, so full of blind self-regard, so untethered to reality that it is impossible to know where his presidency will lead or how much damage he will do to our nation. They go on to uh, say that many of the policies he's putting in place are, are similar to what other Republicans uh, you know, like Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz might have done. But he says they become far more dangerous in the hands of this imprudent and erratic man. They go on to promise uh, the, the rest of their uh, series, uh, one a day over the next four days, uh, covering Trump's shocking lack of respect for fundamental rules and institutions on which our government is based, his utter lack of regard for the truth, his willingness to repeat alt-right conspiracy theories. And then they go on to say, where will this end? Will Trump moderate his crazier campaign positions as time passes? No. Will he provoke confrontation with Iran, North Korea or China or disobey a judge's order or order a soldier to violate the Constitution? The role of the rational opposition, they write, is to stand up for the rule of law, the electoral process, the peaceful transfer of power and the role of institutions we should not underestimate the resiliency of a system in which laws are greater than individuals and voters are as powerful as presidents, they say. They say this uh, nation survived Andrew Jackson, Richard Nixon. It survived slavery. It survived devastating wars. Most likely it will survive again even after Trump. But if it is to do so, those who oppose the new president's reckless and heartless agenda must make their voices heard. Protesters must raise their banners Voters must turn out for elections. Members of Congress, including and especially Republicans, must find the political courage to stand up to Trump. Court, courts must safeguard the Constitution. State legislators must pass laws to protect their citizens and their policies from, mis, from federal meddling. All of us who are in the business of holding leaders accountable must redouble our efforts to defend the truth from his cynical assaults. Well, I continue to redouble my efforts, our efforts here on the broadcast. Hope you will do the same. Uh, just amazing. You can read this at L.A. Times. And uh, the, the second part is uh, is headline comes out today. Why Trump lies in which they call him the liar in chief. What a moment when you have the corporate mainstream media writing editorials like that. Just amazing. 
But we continue to redouble our efforts in the days ahead. My thanks today to Desi Doyen, our producer, to my guest Jenny Harbine of EarthJustice.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.